You're doing a true crime story? I am doing a true crime story. Oh, what? I wasn't going to. I was initially going to do, it was this guy who poisoned his kid with cyanide pixie sticks and the kid died. Like there was enough cyanide in it to kill like two adults and that killed the kid with like in an hour. But then I decided why make people panic over trick-or-treating and Halloween candy? So that's fair. We could save that for the beginning of the year. So then they will forget about it by next Halloween. They'll just throw out all the candy that should be thrown out anyways because it's like two months old. Well, not a lot of kids, like they have like two pixie sticks and then they're done. They don't want any more pixie sticks. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan. The paper gets all wet and gross. Disgusting. Welcome to Hysterical History, where we sit down, talk about our favorite stories, and of course, laugh. Your hosts are Whitley Trussler and Emily Gummery. All right, let's get this show started. So like I said, I am talking about a serial killer who is cemented in American popular culture. What the hell just happened? Are you okay? Why did Siri come on? Siri heard me. And now I've got a bunch of Google articles that have popped up. Natural born celebrities, serial killers. (laughs) Siri said bet. (laughs) You guys don't have weird shit. Here it is. She's like, your facts are wrong from the beginning. Let me give you these Google articles. <laughs> she said, I'm the new co-host. <laughs> That's fine. I just need, no, apparently, <laughs> I said cereal in a very poor way. And she popped up and decided right, she needed it. a... <laughs> um, anyways, what I was saying before we were so rudely interrupted... So this is the serial killer. And the reason I got on this topic, because I was thinking about um, Halloween movies and like not necessarily Halloween, but horror movies and horror films. Yeah. And I remember kind of hearing that this person had inspired the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. So that's why I initially Googled. And then I just found this whole like treasure trove. I didn't really know much about this guy until I did this research. Um, I, I just knew he was a serial killer. So does that mean he eats a lot of cereal? Correct. Just like me. <laughs> Exclusively, I only eat blueberry cereal in the month of October. <laughs> Which you saw when you were at my house. I have two family-sized yeah. boxes of blueberry. And, and I, you are I both finished family. One. I am. I am two families. <laughs> um, but the, the tale of this serial killer first came widespread to public attention in kind of a fictionalized version um, in a novel by Robert Block in the 1959 book Psycho, which we know that this eventually becomes a huge blockbuster film. Psycho was a big one. It was also, like I mentioned, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He inspired that movie. He inspired The Criminal and Silence of the Lambs, House of a Thousand Corpses, the Devil's Rejects, Deranged. So there's like several movies and the list goes on and on. I just pulled movies that and people might have actually heard of. inspired by this one person? Yes. So this serial killer is Ed Gein. <laughs> <laughs> and he was born in La Crosse County, Wisconsin in August of 1906. 
Um, he has, he also had an older brother whose name was Henry and Henry's important in some of his childhood development. Um, I'll tell a little bit of story about how Henry met his fate. Um, and yeah, you so you'll hear a little bit more. Older brother, right? And Henry, yes, was the okay. older brother. Yep. He, I, I, by how much? Five years. So he was born in okay. 1901. Hmm. So... The family looks like this. So there's the older brother, Henry, like I just mentioned, five years older. And then the father, he's an alcoholic. He's unemployed. Um, at one point, he did own a grocery store, but he eventually sold it after a couple years. And they moved the family to a huge farm in Plainfield, Wisconsin. And then the last member of the family is their mother, whose name is Augusta. So... The mother plays a kind of a pivotal role in Gein's childhood and his upbringing. The mother is super religious and she preached to her boys about the immorality of the world, the evil of drinking, which makes sense because her father was an alcoholic and she had to deal with that. And her belief that all women, except for herself, except for herself, were naturally promiscuous and instruments of the devil. This and sounds like Bobby Boucher's mama off of Waterboy. Yeah, maybe that was also inspired by serial killer <laughs> Ed Gein. <laughs> yeah, don't be listening to anybody. They're the devil. <laughs> oh my God, that's actually perfect because Ed is very shy and strange, poor social development, and he was punished when he tried to make friends at school. So this is exact. This is Bobby Boucher, exactly. This you're, is you're literally right. the plot of Waterboy. It is, except there's no football here. There's just murder. Um, well, mix and match. Yeah, yeah. Take what you want. <laughs> this is so, like one of those uh, videos. It's like, take what resonates. Yeah. <laughs> what resonates is that the plot of Waterboy was inspired by a serial killer. So the father, who, who I mentioned was an alcoholic, he died in 1940. So at this point, because the father is gone, the boys start picking up odd jobs around town. And they're actually considered to be pretty reliable and honest by the other residents. Um, but an interesting tidbit that I found here was that Ed really liked babysitting and he really easily related to children rather than adults. So that just kind of goes back to that poor social development that he experienced because of his isolation on their farm. So basically the only time he ever left the farm was to go to school and then he came home. And if he like ever mentioned he tried to make friends or his mom knew he tried to make friends, he was punished. So I'm even surprised that he was able to like babysit because typically the same families ask you over and over again if you're babysitting. And so you would think that she also wouldn't want him to make like those types of relationships either. So that kind of surprises me. She allowed him to babysit. Yeah, and I'm wondering if it's just because of the father's death, they needed more income to keep up the farm and keep up their living expenses with the father passed. So maybe she was more open to it, you know. She said, okay, Bobby Boucher, I'll let you go to college. Go to your little college, but no football. No murdering. It's empty. <laughs> um, but Henry, we're going to get into Henry now who I mentioned earlier was his older brother. He is very concerned how attached Ed is to their mother. If he ever spoke ill of her around Ed, 
Ed would get really upset and hurt by it. So he is not on a great, great terms with his brother, Henry. So uh, in May of 1944, Henry and Ed were working together and they were burning away marsh vegetation on their farm and the fire got out of control, which drew the attention of the local fire department. So the fire department comes, they put out the fire, all is good. And then Ed reports his brother missing hours after the local fire department leaves. Stop it right now. Now it gets worse because I think oh. we all know what's about to happen to Henry so a search party comes out. It's dark. They've all got their lanterns and flashlights going around the farm looking for Henry, who was reported missing by his brother, Ed. His body was found lying face down. He had no burns or injuries from the fire, but he had bruises all over his head. But, <laughs> you know, we see the red flags, but we're just going to, like, push them aside because the police say, no, it wasn't foul play. And the coroner said, oh, it was just asphyxiation from the fire. That was the cause of death. Stop it right now. I wish I was joking. So now we have Ed and his mother. Father and Henry are gone. So now Ed just has all this time to focus on caring for his mother, who shortly after Henry's death has a paralyzing stroke. Of course she does. Yes. So Ed is like completely absorbed in his mother's world now after there were already concerns of him being too attached to his mother. So not good. Moving on a year later in 1945. So mother has already had one stroke. He and his mother, Augusta, they went and visited a man named Smith. He lived nearby. They were just purchasing straw for their farm. Um, so just everyday purchase. And Augusta witnessed that Smith was beating a dog. And a woman who was inside the household, she came out and yelled for him to stop. So it was like yelling for this guy they were going to buy straw from to stop beating this dog. So and he just kept going. Not his, not Ed's mom. Not, yes, came out okay. of the house. Okay, okay. And Smith just kept beating the dog until the dog died in front of them. So Augusta was obviously extremely upset by this scene, but not for the reason you or I would be upset by this scene. What bothered her was the presence of the woman. She told her son, Ed, that the woman was not married to Smith and she had no business being there and was a harlot. So she didn't care that she saw a dog get beat to death in front of her. She cared that there was an unmarried woman at this man's house. So it's messed up, right? That's not very godlike. No. Because all women are promiscuous except for her, remember? Yeah, but God's creatures and all that. Like, I don't see you protecting them. What happens? Uh, forget the lady. What about the dog? Yeah, well. And how come he had a woman at his house? Where's his blame? Emily, only women get blame in history. You know that. We're the Eves, not the Adams. So shortly after this event... Augusta died on December 29th, 1945. She was 67. So the cause of death was a second stroke. So she had the one stroke after Ed's brother Henry died. And then she had a second stroke the following year. And she quickly deteriorated. Her health did. And she passed away. And Ed was just absolutely devastated. Oh, I'm sure. This was his last 
real connection left in the world. He didn't have any friends. He didn't have any other family. That was his mom was it. And he loved his mom so much. And so things, this is where things start to really get weird. I guess I'll just say that. Okay. So Ed held on to the farm and after his mother, mother's death, he boarded up all the rooms that were used by his mother, the stair, like upstairs, all of upstairs, the downstairs parlor and the living room. And they were completely untouched. He just boarded them up. He just, because he closed off everything else, he just lived in a small room next to the kitchen. Hmm. So the rest of the house becomes absolutely filthy, but these rooms are less left in their pristine condition. The ones like he all the ones he closed off, like they yeah. were never touched again. And around this time, he also became very interested in reading pulp magazines and adventure stories. And he was particularly interested in stories involving cannibals or Nazi crimes and atrocities. So like we're we're interested in Nazi like stuff, but like not not I don't like that. I've ever been interested in cannibalism. No, correct. Me either. And I feel like his interest in Nazi crimes are different than my interest in Nazi crimes. Mine's like I can't believe this happened. Exactly. And how do we stop it from happening again? Yes, like what lessons can we gain here? Not yeah. Ed. Ed just enjoyed it. So now we're going to get into the crimes. The crimes. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So on the morning of November 16th, 1957, a hardware store owner named Bernice Warden disappeared from Plainfield, Wisconsin. I'm sorry. Do you know how close that is to him? Because isn't he in Wisconsin? He is. So he lives, he lives in Plainfield. Oh, oh, okay. Just in a farm. Sorry, short-term memory loss, I guess. No, you're fine. Yeah, so he he lives on a farm outside of the town. Hmm. Um, Yes. A resident of the town reported that the hardware store's truck had been driven out the rear of the building at around 9.30 that morning. So, obviously, some suspicious activity going on already. The store really didn't see that many customers. So not too many people went by the store that day. So nobody really thought much of it, that it was closed. So around 5 p.m., Bernice Warden's son, Frank, entered the shop. And one important detail, he's the deputy sheriff of the town. Well, of the county, I should say. He's the deputy sheriff of the county. (laughs) And he found the store's cash cash register open and there were bloodstains all over the floor. So it was open, but was the money taken? Or did they open it to make it look like a robbery? Um, I doubt that. And you'll see why when I talk about Gein's sanity. Gotcha. So Frank Warden, the hardware store owner's son, who was also the deputy sheriff, he told investigators that on the evening before his mother disappeared, Gein was in the store and... He had talked to his mother, Bernice, and he needed to return the next morning to get a gallon of antifreeze. So that was the discussion that took place. And in the store, there was a sales slip for a gallon of antifreeze, and that was the last receipt written by Bernice on the morning she disappeared. And who do you think was on that receipt? Ed Gein. Ed Gein. Ed Gein. So on that very same evening, they arrested Gein at a grocery store in Plainfield. 
And then they went to search the farm, which is where things get really messed up. Okay. Okay. I'm here for it. So there's a shed on the property that they go to search. And this is where they discover the body of Bernice Warden. She's decapitated. She's hanging upside down by her legs with a crossbar at her ankles and ropes on her wrists. And the weird part, the weirdest part, I guess I should say, it's all weird. Her torso was dressed out like a deer. She was basically like hanging upside down, slit open, like you've seen a deer before, right? Oh, yeah. Like she didn't have a head. Yes. And the mutilation happened after her death. The cause of death was a 22 caliber rifle, but essentially shot her, hung her up, slit her open like a deer. And that's how they found her in his shed. But there's more. Of course there is. Then they searched the house. And this just brings a whole load of other questions about what the hell is going on here. I'm just going to list out all the things that they found in the house. And it's a little bit lengthy. So just wait for it. They found whole human bones and fragments of bones. They found a waste basket made out of human skin. What? They found, yes, several chair seats that were covered in human skin, like upholstered with it. Skulls on his bedposts. Female skulls with the tops sawn off. Bowls made from human skulls. A corset made from a female torso, skinned from the shoulders to the waist. Leggings made from a human leg skin. Masks made from the skin of females. Mary Hogan's face mask in a paper bag, so her face. Mary Hogan, I will tell you after, this is another crime that he committed before Bernice. So he killed Mary Hogan before Bernice. And I'll get to that story in a minute because it's very disturbing why he did it. They also found Mary Hogan's skull in a box. They found Bernice Warden's entire head in a burlap sack. They found Bernice's heart in a plastic bag in front of Gein's potbelly stove. They found nine volve in a shoe box. They found a young girl's dress in the vulvas of two females judged to have been about 15 years old. They found a belt made from female human nipples, a pair of lips on a window shade drawstring. So just, you know, pull somebody's lips to turn on your lamp. Why not? Um, a lampshade made from the skin of a human face and fingernails from female fingers, like whole fingernails. Just fingernails. Just fingernails. This is his, the complete list of stuff they found. Those poor women. Well, I I feel like, listen, you should not kill anyone. I, I fully believe that murder, it takes a sick kind of person to be able to commit a murder. But like to do all of that after you already murdered someone. The, he so, only has no two known murders, Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden. So where did all the other body parts come from? When Gein was questioned between 1947, or sorry, he told investigators that between 1947 and 1952, 
He made as many as 40 visits to three local graveyards during the night to exhume recently buried bodies. Stop. Oh, my God. So now he's disgracing graves, too. Yes. So he's a grave robber. He goes, he takes the bodies out and then turns them into things like furniture. Like, he keeps them in his house. Like, he made a a lamp with somebody's lips and, you know, put their skin as the lampshade. But he said on about 30 of the 40 visits he talked about, he said he came out of a daze while he was in the cemetery and he left the grave graveyard in good order and he didn't take anything so this is kind of where people start to think okay this guy's like not all he's not functional really and wait so just so i understand he would go to the grave mm -hmm. and there were times or every time he would wake up from a daze sometimes so on the times he would wake up from a daze are the times he did not take anything. Right. So he's either suffering from like a mental break or obviously he's possessed by a demon. He dug up the graves on the other visits where he didn't like snap out of his days that he was in. He would dig up bodies of recently buried middle-aged women that he thought resembled his mother and he would take the bodies home and tan their skins and make the things that he made like the lamps you know the the corset the the pants that he had if you're trying to replicate your mom wouldn't you just like embalm their body like kind of what you see on like you know criminal minds and stuff like embalm their bodies <laughs> and pretend that they're alive like why why i don't understand how you making leggings out of human skin correlates to your mother. Yeah, well, I'm I'm getting there. Sorry, it's, it's very I interesting. Just have a lot of questions. No, I no, and I think we all probably should have a lot of questions. Like, how does this happen? Well, um, anybody who's like, I totally understand. Please don't ever be friends with me ever again. <laughs> <laughs> so Ed admitted to stealing from nine graves at local cemeteries. And he told investigators about their location. So they basically opened three test graves that were identified by Ed just, just to basically test like, oh, is this guy a pathological liar or did he actually like dig up graves and or did he murder a bunch of people? Like what happened here? Mm -hmm. So they went to these three graves and the tops of the boxes were about two feet down um, the surface of the soil and what had happened is Gein had robbed the graves soon after the funerals, before the graves were fully completed. So, like, before the top, top layer of soil went oh, down. Two feet is not that deep. No, 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 no. They, they kind of didn't believe, like, one, they needed to know, did he actually dig up graves or was he, like, out murdering people? And then, two, they questioned if he was even capable of digging up digging up a grave by himself in a single evening. But he was completely truthful and all three of the grave sites exactly matched his descriptions he gave. So two of the graves were found completely empty. Um, one casket he had failed to open. He lost his pry bar. So the pry bar was still there. Um, and then, yeah, the, 
the bodies were either completely gone or almost gone from the other two graves that, like I had mentioned. So the three, like, were exactly how he had said they he left him. Robbed three graves and murdered two women. So five women altogether. So he actually robbed nine, nine graves. Oh, but they only those are just the three. They like yes, test sites. Gotcha, gotcha. So now I'm going to go back to the the question you had about why was he wearing the skin of women? So after whoa, 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 rewind. He was wearing them. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So what he did, why he had the corset and the pants. He created a woman's suit so that he could become his mother and literally crawl into her skin. He wore them. Aww. He wore he wore all the masks. He wore the like corset. He wore the pants. Wait, he would wait. put all the skin on. Yeah. What? He did deny having sex with the bodies, saying they smelled too bad. So I don't. There's that. You know, good for him. Um, so this is where. He admits to the shooting death of Mary Hogan, who I mentioned earlier. They had found um, Mm -hmm. some of her remains there. She was a tavern owner who went missing in 1954, and her head was found in his house, but he denied memory of the details. He murdered Mary Hogan because he wanted to make a woman's suit, quote unquote, to crawl into the skin of his mother because she resembled his mother. So was Mary first and then he robbed graves and then killed what is it bernice from what you're saying it makes it sound like he thought you know it would be a good idea is to have a suit and then he murdered mary and grave robbed and then found bernice is what it makes it sound like yeah between 1947 and 1952 Gein exhumed the bodies from the graveyard. And then in 1954, he murders Mary Hogan. And then after that, in 1957, Bernice Warden is murdered. So that's the timeline. Graves, Mary, Bernice. So he must not have been able to get what he needed skin-wise from the bodies in the grave. Maybe because they weren't like and I hate to put it this way, but like maybe because they weren't like fresh. Maybe only the mask that he wore was of Mary Hogan. Well, then where'd the corset and the pants come from? Yeah, I'm sorry. He made, just to answer your question though, the corset was made when he exhumed graveyard. So that was from dead flesh. And he then tanned the, the flesh to like, like you do, like if you're creating a fur rug with a, you know, deer. Nobody deserves that. No, not at all. So now we get to the trial, which is, it's a fast trial because, I, I mean, hope so. there wasn't actually even a jury. They said, oh, guilty. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He was arraigned on one count of first degree murder. He pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. And after that, he was sent to the Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane after that trial. 
So they decided like that was a ruling like he was going to need to be in a mental hospital. Gein was not able to confer with counsel and could not participate in his defense. Um, the trial only lasted a week. And a psychiatrist testified that Gein, he really didn't know whether he accidentally killed Bernice or if it was intentional. Because remember, we talked about earlier the dazes he would come in and out of when exhuming the graves. So mm-hmm. Gein told them, which this is really questionable. This sounds like a lie to me. He told them that he was examining a gun in Warden's store and the gun went off, killing her. And he testified that after he tried to load a bullet into the rifle, it just discharged. He said he didn't aim the rifle at her and he did not remember anything else that happened that morning. Now, let me tell you why that's BS. (laughs) Because, and you and I both know that in a a small town where you work at one job all this time, you're going to know the ins and outs of a job. Nobody in their right mind working at a gun store is going to give you a gun to look at and then also a live round of ammunition to put in the gun. So what I'm wondering happened, so 1957 is when he initially got convicted of this murder and sent to the mental hospital. And then in 1968, he started claiming that it was an accident. He doesn't remember what happened. So I'm thinking what happened is this was like an appeal to the original case, but he was found guilty on November 14th, 1968, shocking, in this second trial to deal with the case of his insanity. Um, And he was at this time diagnosed with schizophrenia and found mentally incompetent. So he stayed at that um, hospital that I had mentioned initially, the Central State Hospital for Criminally Insane, and then eventually he was transferred to the Mendota Mental Health Institute, where he died from lung cancer at the age of 77 in 1984. And his gravesite is now unmarked. It, it was marked at first. They had a gravestone there. But over the years, people would go and chip pieces from the gravestone from the Plainfield Cemetery as a souvenir. But finally, in the year 2000, the entire stone itself was stolen. They recovered it in June of 2001, but they put it in storage at the sheriff's department in Wisconsin after that they after they recovered it they never put it back um so yeah his gravesite is now unmarked but not unknown so i actually am going to continue our spectacular episodes and build off of my last week's story of spiritualism um by going ahead and telling you about Cora Scott ooh this is one of our side branch stories yes Yeah, okay. Cora Scott was born April 21st, 1840 in Cuba, New York, which I looked into and it was part of the Burned Over District. So remember I told you that that was where spiritualism started. She was born in April 1st, 1840. This is around the same time spiritualism came onto the scene. So coinkydink, I think not. When she was born, she had a call C-A-U-L, over her face, which I was like, I've never heard of this. What is this? Um, Basically, it's a piece of membrane covering the newborn's face. It's harmless and can be removed by anyone in the room during birth. Uh, This happens in fewer than one out of 80,000 births. So some folk religions 
take, like take this when it happens as a sign that the infant could have special powers. So, you know, everybody's all over it now because spiritualism's getting real popular. And now she has this, this call over her face. So she is super special. I could see, I guess, maybe why you'd think these babies are like, have superpowers. I don't know. It it looks very alien. Let's see. I did not look at a photo because I was afraid to. The first picture is like, baby was born in a bubble oh, and his expressions are everything. Yeah, that's, I. this is why I didn't look at the photos. Okay. Moving on. So initially her family was Presbyterian, but they soon found their way to the universalist religion. Um, In early 1851, they joined the Hopedale community, which is an intentional community. Um, So basically what that means is a group of people get together and they, it's just like one of those, um, they live off of the earth and off of each other. And it's just supposed to be like a good old down home, hunky dory community where everything's like fine and dandy. Um, and this took them to Hopedale, Massachusetts. So um, they ultimately found the community too crowded and the family moved again later the same year. Uh, this time they found themselves in Waterloo, Wisconsin, and they founded their own inter- um, intentional community. In 1852, Cora exhibited the ability to fall into a trance where she would write messages and talk in ways unlike herself. The notes I found put this a little nicer than me, um, but basically at this point, this was when her family uh, began to show her around like cattle for sale across the country um, and show off her talents and make money. It was unclear if they actually charged money because on some of the note, like some of the um, information I found, I couldn't quite get that. But I, I feel like from what we learned last week, it's safe to bet that they did just charge money. One good thing, though, that came out of the shuffling around was that she was able to network and meet others that represented themselves like her. I don't want to pass judgment on who was fact and who was fiction, uh, but they had very little in terms of legitimizing um, evidence or ways of legitimizing evidence back then. So at this point, unless I want to be haunted by a million spiritualist ghosts, I think it's fair to assume that everybody's the real deal. In 1853, her father died and this gave her the push she needed. So in 1854, She moved to Buffalo, New York, where she became very popular during the spiritualist movement. And I just want to like literally in all bold and all caps say she's 14 when she does this. Is she alone? Yeah, she moved by herself. Uh, What? (laughs) I think that's maybe just our like modern day standards and expectations, but. 14? I don't know. That's pretty young. I guess like kids used to get four years too early for me. Well, that makes sense. (laughs) But hey, do your own thing, girl. Do your own thing. So by the next year, 1854, she was holding public shows where she would go into a quote trance and speak with quote supernatural eloquence on any subject asked from the audience. Um, Like I um, hinted at last week, 
Um, many were able to be convinced of her abilities just because she was beautiful and smart. Cora found herself going through husbands like someone goes through socks. Um, in her lifetime, she had four. And with each husband, she took her last name, uh, took their last name. Um, so I'm sure when you're like looking things up and for audiences at the time, it was super confusing because initially she went by Cora Scott. Uh, but then she cycled through Hatch, Daniels, Tappan, and Richmond. I think I have heard of Cora Hatch. Yes. Now that you mentioned that. Let me tell you why you've heard of Cora Hatch. She found herself married the first time at just 16 to professor. Well, so one site told me that he was a professional mesmerist. So last week we learned that that was just him being very good at um, hypnotism. Um, his name's Benjamin Franklin Hatch. However, um, another like research item I found said that he was actually a dentist. So I'm not sure if like maybe he was both, but just so everybody is clear, like I don't want to pick and choose. He either is a mesmerist or a dentist or both. Everyone's got that side hustle, you know? <sighs> yeah. Or maybe he was a dentist and thought he could make more money doing this. I'm not sure. But he, in the initial information I found, it said he was over 30 years older than her. So he was roughly 46. So almost 50. He actually managed Cora with the goal of maximizing her revenue. I also found this quote about their marriage. So in a book or an article, I'm not really quite sure what it is because it was like an article referencing this, but it didn't tell me if it was a book or an, another article. It's called Spiritual Inquities, Unmasked, and the Hatch Divorce Case. So they got divorced eventually and doc, th this one referenced him being a dentist and him being a doctor. So Dr. Hatch ex excoriated Cora for leaving him for another man. He then rebuked spiritualism because he claimed and encouraged free love. Yeah. So though their marriage ended bitterly, that's why you're, um, you're referencing her or you're, she's well known to you as Cora Hatch because, um, the height of her fame came while she was with him and he was managing her and she was like doing, doing her thing. So there's little to no information that I could find about her man marriage to, uh, Mr. Daniels. So I don't know who he is, what he did how long they were married, why they got, I'm assuming they got divorced, but for all I know, he died. I don't know. She then, after that, marries Samuel Tappan, an abolitionist, Native American rights activist, and military officer. So listen, he's doing it all. Now here, Whitley, is where it gets freaking interesting. And I thought, oh, this is just going to be a story where I tell you about this lady who does weird stuff and claims it's a ghost. Which it is that, but it's, it's weird. It's weird. So hold on to your hat. So they lived in DC and her skills were at demand at the highest levels of state. 
What does that mean, Emily? You ask. Let me tell you, Whitley. So she was well known to Abe Lincoln and his party, which we semi discussed when he would do, when she would do, or when, um, my brain is all over the place because I'm so excited for this part. Um, when she would, well, not she, I guess it could have been her, but when Mary had seances at the White House, first because of their son. Um, she was at this time also known to be sought after for her military opinion during the Civil War. Wait, Cora? Yes. But that's not all. When President Johnson was in office, his opposition party consulted with Cora. And President Grant utilized her abilities during his first term. He even went so far as to award her with a resolution of gratitude for six years of service. So she's like instructing and giving advice and counsel to the highest offices in our nation during the biggest conflict in our nation's history and after, before and after, during and after. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. I think that's a big sign of how popular spiritualism was at this time that everybody was involved, even like the highest offices in the nation. So no, I think, I think that I just wanted to reiterate that point that spiritualism was really important, which I didn't realize. Yeah. Well, not only that, but it's crazy to me how it's just, I mean, I know that everybody lets their beliefs like cloud their judgment sometime. I mean, it, it doesn't matter your party, your religion, your beliefs, like we all do it. it. It's just human nature to just like let your beliefs cloud some of that judgment sometimes. But this was such a new thing that it blew my mind to know that we were making like military decisions based off what she was saying. So like, are we dumb or was she really legit? I mean, I always lean with we're dumb, like in every single situation, but (laughs) I always always lean with she's legit. (laughs) This is why this works. (laughs) One, One of us has to pick the opposite side. We can't both have the same thinking or it would just be a terrible podcast. We'd have less listeners than we have now. (laughs) instead of five we'd have four we'd have negative five (laughs) our users somehow died and their spirits are also not liking the podcast they're siding with emily i guess cora can come to me in my dreams and tell me what she thinks about this episode so and if that really happens i swear to god i will i will literally call you at 2 a.m and have a panic and i'll be like cora came to me in my dream and well, my phone will be on sleep focus and it will I'll still silence call. the notification. I'll still call. Well, I'm not answering. It'll notify quietly. <laughs> Instead of ring, ring, it'll be ring, 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 ring. It'll say, psst, hey, Lily, Lily, hey, psst, you're getting a phone call. Hey, Lily. I hate us. This is why people don't listen. Okay, so... <laughs> 
in 187, oh, I'm sorry. So unfortunately her marriage to Tappan would also end in divorce. So we for sure know she's had two divorces and a third possible slash maybe she was a widow. Who knows? In 1873, she moved to London, and on May 10th, 1874, she delivered an inspirational discourse at Cleveland Hall in London. The next week, um, Judge Edmonds, who died less than two months earlier, so in March, would utilize Cora to give a speech to a loud crowd or a large crowd in Cleveland Hall. Wait, can you repeat that? What? Wait, was he speaking through her to give the speech in Cleveland Hall? Is that what I'm gathering? Judge John Edmonds, who died less than two months earlier. So she was in London in May. He died in March. He would go to utilize her to give a speech to a large crowd in Cleveland Hall. Okay, so he's speaking through Cora. Correct. Um, while she is in London, she would also go on to give 3,000 lectures. So ranges from like just talking about spiritualism to her actually doing like trance work and things in front of people, all of it. She moved there in 73. She returned to the U.S. in 75. Upon her return, she moved to Chicago and became a pastor at a spiritualist church. In 1878, she would marry William Richmond. I think out of all, so Hatch obviously did the most for her career. Uh, That's why you know her as Cora Hatch. But I think William Richmond actually, I, if, and listen, this is off of like two sentences, but I think he actually really cared about her. He w- literally learned shorthand so he could go to her lectures and record them for her for, pu- uh, for publication and then also would act as her publisher. Oh, here's also where it gets freaking crazy because you don't think it can get any crazier. On February 24th, 1883, She channeled President James Garfield, who was assassinated in 81, to give a a message to the nation from D.C. And she did it? Yeah. Just like going back also to one of our previous episodes, this was one of the buildups for the creation of the Secret Service was James Garfield's death. But anyways. Well, that's probably because he gave a speech. (laughs) And said, you guys should have stopped this. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, you guys are doing a terrible job. What the hell? Yeah, that's basically what the speech was. In 1893, she did a presentation on spiritualism at the Parliament of the World's Religions in Chicago. This same year, she also helped found the National Spiritualist Association and was elected as their first vice president. She would continue her membership and participation for the next 20 years. So for, so that was in 1893. For 20 years, she did that. And then on January 3rd, 1923, at the age of 82, 
Cora passed away in Chicago, Illinois.